Ladies and gentlemen, kicking off the first stop on his world tour, our new president and prophet, Russell M. Nelson! You say you want some revelation, well here you go. It's gonna blow your freaking mind. Hey, it's May 15th, 2022, and uh, this is the Mormon News Roundup. I'm your host, uh, D-Base, and I'm joined by my co-host, Al. Hey, D-Base, thanks for having me again for another week of Mormondom News. This is going to be an absolutely incredible week. You are not going to want to miss a minute of it. we got an action-packed week in Mormonism where we're going to look at how Captain Moroni ended up in federal prison and what the LDS Church is doing to help refugees in Ukraine and how you listener, can get your own church-approved, personalized, custom garments. And we're going to end this with a blockbuster report on church finances and much, much more. This is a must-listen must episode, Al. We've got some pretty heavy hitters on this uh, episode. And, you know, the funny thing is, I think most of it comes from earlier on in the week. I I didn't see a lot of news from later on in the week, um, but boy, it I think by Tuesday, our list was as long as my arm. This is going to be absolutely thrilling. I cannot wait. I would like to thank our sponsor, which is a Signature Books. You can head over to their website, www.signaturebooks.com. And they have released, to give them, uh, Al and myself, an advanced copy of Romney Books' new book, which is a uh, new book, excuse me, Romney Burks' new book, which is entitled Susan Young Gates, Daughter of Mormonism. And we're going to be uh, giving you a little bit of snippets on that in the future. We're just going to give you a little bit of a teaser on that. But uh, we're looking forward to reading this advanced copy of the book. And uh, you should, as a listener, you should go out there and uh, check out that book as well. We'll give you a little bit more of that uh, as we get going along. Our first article today is uh, brought to you by Al. And uh, can you take us through the first article? I certainly will. Uh, so there's, we're going to head over across the pond to one of the big hot spots in the world news right now, Ukraine. Um, so Russia's invaded Ukraine. Ukraine's fighting very hard against Russia. And the, the uh, church uh, newsroom, this one comes from the church's uh, own newsroom for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and this is an article, uh, they, did, it, they just titled it as a news release, so I'm not sure what what to title this, or or I, they didn't even tell me who wrote it, um, but it's from uh, May 9th, 2022, and um, I'm just going to tell you that uh, they had a chapel in the city of Lviv, which um, <laughs> is Ukrainian for Lviv, um, and so this little uh Chapel in Lviv is where they're staging and supplying people who are looking to evacuate from Ukraine to Poland. And so it's kind of like a last stop where people can rest up, they can gather themselves, regroup a little, and uh, resupply before heading over the border into Poland. And so they've had some uh, members, um, German members, um, driving vans, uh, not rented vans, privately owned vehicles loaded with supplies um, all the way across the border from Germany over into Ukraine where they could drop supplies at this uh, church building. And we've talked uh, in the past a little bit about the church using their um, their buildings for more than just uh, a meeting house on Sundays. Uh, and, and this is a prime example. I mean, the church is basically a refugee shelter, a homeless shelter, a 
uh, soup kitchen. It's, it, I mean, it's got a kitchen in there, fully stocked, uh, or, or fully stocked with, you know, some serving utensils and whatnot. But uh, now they're bringing in food and everything that they can cook there in the kitchen. They've got bathrooms. So they've got a baptismal font that they're turning into using for like bathing and showering purposes. Uh, they've got the showers in there uh, as well. So, uh, and they've converted all of the classrooms and the offices uh, and, and the gymnasium into different purposed areas for people to gather. Um, they can spend the night, they can sleep there for two or three days uh, just to rest up before making that trip across the border. So it's uh, this is one of the really good articles about the church. I'm really proud of the church for doing this kind of humanitarian work. Yeah, you bet, Al. And we covered this in one of our previous episodes that the church has donated millions of dollars in the uh, uh, to help combat the refugee crisis in Ukraine. They've got uh, they talked about how the mission president in this article is uh, working with it with, uh, you know, with volunteers that are driving long distances to really take care of folks who are in difficult circumstances. And it's not just in Ukraine. It's uh, stakes in Germany, Switzerland, Austria. They've all uh, partnered with uh, smaller branches to, to meet the specific needs of the refugees traveling out of the Ukraine crisis. In fact, we brought up in one of our previous uh, Mormon News Roundup episodes that uh, the church took a hotel and converted mm-hmm. it to a refugee camp and decided to, uh, well, and, and to be specific, an NGO was using a hotel to house refugees on their way out of this uh, horrible crisis. And the church said that they were going to pick up the tab for that hotel and that they pledged in excess of $10 million. And Russell, um, uh, the president of the church, Russell M. Nelson, is saying, quote, we're doing everything that we can in this. And it really seems like the churches are really, um, really leading the way and doing a terrific job. So, uh, you know, it, 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 I find a lot of pride, you know, that uh, that they're following the Christ-like charitable uh you know, I, th- I think Jesus would be proud of what the church is doing in Ukraine. Absolutely. You know, this is one of those episodes that, I mean, we do, uh, we, we poke a jab at the church here and there. And uh, even later on this episode, I'm sure we'll poke a few jabs. But we really want to report on all the good, the bad, and the ugly of Mormonism. And this is one of those wonderful times where we get to say, you know, just throw a clap out there, a pat on the back give an attaboy to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for their efforts on the world stage. You betcha, Al. And by the way, uh, we have a website. If you uh, have news articles that you want to submit to us and that we have, that you think would be interesting for our next episode of Mormon News Roundup, this is our seventh episode. And for episode eight, if you have a, an article that you want to share with us, then head on over to our website, which is mormonnewsroundup.org. That's with two N's, mormonnewsroundup.org. And you can submit an article uh, for next week that we'd be happy to take a look at. And that takes us to our second article, which uh, I find to be very interesting. And uh, it deals with Captain Moroni. By the way, uh, who is Captain Moroni, Al? Okay, so Captain Moroni, um, all right, any of our listeners ought to know who this guy is. Um, but I mean, I, I guess I could say his, uh, it's James Wayne Entrican, but, uh, I'm going to go a little bit further than that. The actual character Captain Moroni comes straight out of the book of Mormon, um, from the book of Alma. And during the, the wars between the Lamanites and the Nephites, Captain Moroni was the leader of the Nephite armies. So... Uh, yeah, he basically, he lived in the first century BC, skilled military commander, 
and uh, kind of one of the, the the chief characters in the Book of Mormon. He also in the Book of Mormon was famous for his title of liberty. What what was the title of liberty, Al? Do you remember? Yeah. So the title of liberty was a banner that he'd taken, and or he took his cloak and uh, wrote on it um, in memory of our our wives, our children, our freedom, and our religion. Um, and, uh, basically just went, uh, flying this banner around so that, uh, people would rally to him and take up arms to overthrow the king that the wicked Nephites had in, had put in place or had put in power and run off the old democratic, uh, the elected, um, let's see, chief, is it chief priest? I think it was uh, uh, the Ammonihah. Oh, yeah, Ammonihah, the chief judge. That's what I'm thinking. Chief judge. Chief judge. I believe it was Ammonihah. So yeah. why are we bringing up, how is Captain Moroni, who lived in 100 BC, how is he, oh, I'm sorry, it's Amalekai's. Uh, Amalekai's. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah, Ammonihah, I think, is a, a town. Right, it's, yes, it's Amalekai. Uh, but yeah. how is it that he's making the news since uh, King Moroni lived in 100 BC? How is he making the news uh, in in this week? <laughs> in 2022? Yeah. Um, well, on May 6th, okay, this one comes from the uh, website Law and Crime. And the title of the article is Man Who Dressed as Captain Moroni for a Mormon Sacred Text on January 6th, which January 6th, 2021, um, tells judge he still believes election results were tampered with and gets jail time. This one's from Marissa Sarnoff. Wait a minute. You're telling me, Al, that Captain Moroni is heading to federal prison? He's headed to federal prison. This, poor, this poor guy. Okay. So it's not actually. Joseph Smith never saw this coming. I'm going to go out on a limb here. <laughs> Joseph, Smith, Joseph Smith never saw this one coming. Oh, and you said Will Smith. I thought, well, yeah, I guess uh, Will Smith got smacked on the face on this one, didn't he? No, I meant Joseph Smith. <laughs> Joseph Smith. You didn't anticipate Captain Moroni going to federal prison. How could you imagine if Joseph Smith could see and read about this story in, in today? Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, uh, the name of this uh, gentleman from Arizona is James Wayne Entrick, and he's 49 years old. Um, a little bit, uh, what, uh, shall we say stocky in build and, uh, he dressed up in what people, uh, described as being uh, Roman gladiator armor. And, uh, but this is, you know, it's not his fault. Anybody that's seen the very popular painting of Captain Moroni sees that he's wearing this style of Roman armor uh, standing there, holding the title of liberty, waving in the wind behind him. So, I mean, this guy, he's he dressed up like Captain Moroni, the best that he had been taught. So, um, yeah, and he, stormed, he stormed the Capitol on January 6th as part of the insurrection yeah. to overthrow the government. Yeah, made national news and then goes and tells the judge during his thing, that he was wrong. He felt like he he knew that as soon as they went inside the Capitol that he had done the wrong thing and went too far. So uh, he owned up to his his fault or his uh, his guilt there. Um, and that's what got him thrown in. in well, it, is that what got him thrown in prison? What happened is... <laughs> it ends up that he didn't, he didn't get convicted of a felony, Al. It was only a misdemeanor. Yeah, um, it was a misdemeanor. 
It's yeah. <laughs> so it's some not- of these other capital rioters, though, they've received a lot more time than he did. Some of them have gotten nine months in prison, so he only got forty-five mm-hmm. days. And I think some of the reason yeah. behind that is he didn't. Ass- he wasn't beating anyone. He didn't assault anyone. He didn't. You know, he didn't. He didn't destroy anything. He just trespassed yeah. in the building, and that's what his misdemeanor. Um, it, he was guilty of a trespass. So he was. Yeah. I, you know, obviously anyone who participated in that uh, should be condemned. That was an outrage to our constitution and to our government. Yeah. Um, but he seemed to have gotten a, a, a shorter sentence than most people. He did. And I think it's because he owned up to his guilt um, that he knows he took it too far. He, he made national headlines by uh, being quoted for saying that the election was uh, stolen, that Biden should was never supposed to be president. And, you know, I guess big Trump supporter, he really wanted his candidate to win, which he didn't. Now, the ironic thing that I find about all this, Dives, is you've got this guy from Arizona who is trying to overthrow a democratically run election by referencing a, a a book of mormon character who was trying to overthrow a non-democratically appointed king good point and reinstate a democratically uh, appointed president or chief judge so you're saying he basically had it backwards yeah it's just it's a little it is a little backwards but you know he's not the first person <laughs> It's not the first person to do this. I mean, our own senator in Utah, Mike Lee, he referred to President Trump as Captain Moroni. That that is correct. Yes, he compared President Mike Lee, who's also a Latter-day Saint, very active. Mm -hmm. He says that Donald Trump, he compared Donald Trump to Captain Moroni. He said, quote, to my Mormon friends, my Latter-day Saint friends, think of Donald Trump as Captain Moroni, end quote. Now, Al, when when, when I think of Donald Trump... um, about the last thing that comes to mind is Captain Moroni. I, I, I don't, I don't see it. No, uh, Donald Trump is a, maybe a bit of a rabble rouser, but I don't see him as being a great general or um, a skilled leader. Uh, I certainly don't see him as a well-disciplined person. Well, listen. Also, I, I, I'm a veteran of the armed forces. Remember, Donald Trump got five mm-hmm. exemptions for the Vietnam War. And there's been a significant amount of research into those exemptions, including the doctor who gave him his uh, exemptions for Vietnam, who said that he had bone spurs. You might remember that. I Mm -hmm. I don't seem to remember Captain Moroni getting exemptions from any battles or um, bone spurs. And by the way, that doctor, uh, a a lot of people have said that he was paid to give those exemptions and that Donald Trump really never had bone spurs. So it's really kind of it's a, to put those two in the same sentence. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't see how you. I, I can't find two people who are more further apart than Captain Ramon I and Donald Trump to begin with. Well, for real. I mean, when it comes to bone spurs, I know that like on the heel of everybody's foot, like the heel bone, there is a spur that uh, pushes forward, and a lot of times people get plantar fasciitis from that uh, spur digging into the tendon that runs along the bottom of your foot. Very painful thing. Um, but uh, some spurs are just natural. So I don't doubt that, you know, Donald Trump has a, a bone spur on 
is heel bone, just like everybody else. Maybe that's why um, he had such difficulty walking down ramps when he was at West Point, if you remember him uh, going that's, down that ramp. I do. Um, it's a little funny. <laughs> um, last thing on Captain Moroni, what, what this really brings up also is that for Latter-day Saints, Captain Moroni is kind of like a dog whistle out there that says that mm-hmm. the government is tyrannical and whatever we want is correct. Remember Cliven Bundy, the anti-government activist, who is also a member of the LDS Church. Well, he made references to uh, Captain Moroni in his standoff in Nevada back in 2014. Mm-hmm. And Bundy used banners quoting Moroni as well. His fame, you know, the famous quote from Captain Moroni, quote, in memory of our God, our religion and freedom and peace, our wives and our children. So mm-hmm. even these really off you know, these really weird Latter-day Saints are quoting him. And also Ammon Bundy, the son of Cliven, who had that uh, standoff at the uh, National Wildlife Refuge in, what was that, Oregon? Yeah, it was up in Oregon. Some, I mean, very much like a backwoods, uh, you could say it's a national park, but it's, I mean, it's out there in the middle of nowhere. Very Like, I think as far as national parks go, it might have been like a, a picnic bench next to a porta potty or an uh, outhouse or something. Yeah, so he called himself, Ammon Bundy called himself Captain Moroni. So Captain yeah. Moroni is being used by these really outlandish and quite frankly criminal uh, Mormons in a odd way to justify insurrectionist and illegal activities. Do I have that about right? Absolutely right. And um, what's really upsetting about that is we... We'll see a little bit of that uh, in a later uh, article when we get into talking about episode four of Under the Banner of Heaven. Um, But you'll see it's kind of dangerous when you have really staunch believing uh, Latter-day Saints that decide to take some sort of Book of Mormon reference as an excuse to break the laws of the land. That's well said. And if if our listeners have made it this far, would you head on over to Twitter and let us know what your thoughts are on this uh, captain, this Arizona Captain Moroni going to federal prison? Do you think that he got the correct sentence? Do you think that he should have gotten more time? Should he have gotten less time? Let us know on, on Twitter and we're at News Mormon on Twitter. And that brings us to our next article, which was published. Uh, this is article number, uh, sorry, pardon me. This is article number our third Three. article. Yeah, our third article. Third article, which was published on Reddit four days ago on May 9th, 2022. And we're gonna, not going to take too much time on this one, but this this is a funny thread that somebody, you know, the Washington, D.C. temple is reopening. And by the way, I have my tour lined up on June 3rd to go through the Washington, D.C. temple, Al, for the uh, public tour. So I'm locked in. Do you? Um, Good for you. Chance of a lifetime. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it every minute. We're going with my entire family, including extended family. It should be a great time. And this article, <laughs> which is a real tongue-in-cheek article, somebody was in Trader Joe's. And by, <laughs> by the way, this is in the uh, Reddit, the Latter-day Saint uh, a subreddit on uh, Reddit, which is the faithful Reddit version, by the way. some yeah. And the title of the article is Some Interesting Beer I Spotted at Trader Joe's in Washington, D.C. this weekend. Can you describe what's in that picture, Al? Yeah, that is a picture of a, a beer bottle that says Surrender Dorothy Ale. And it's got a picture of the temple on there. And it's mm-hmm. also got somebody um, 
it's got like a construction worker who's trying to paint over the overpass mm-hmm. that people are always putting on this overpass on uh, I-495. They're always putting surrender Dorothy on this overpass and they keep having to paint over it and people keep putting it back on there. It's like a running joke. Mm-hmm. So this comes from Seven Locks Brewing in uh, Rockville, Maryland. And, you know, I'd love to go and sample it, but I'm going to tell you, Al, I'm a teetotaler and, um, I wouldn't be able to tell you if it was good ale or not, to mm-hmm. be honest with you. So I'm probably the wrong one to buy some and give you an opinion. Yeah, uh, I'll bet it tastes like beer. <laughs> well, it gives an entirely new definition to Pele Ale. I, you know, that's the oldest joke in the book. That's, that's the oldest joke in the book, but uh, I guess I'll use yeah. it here anyway. But I'm looking forward to touring the D.C. Temple. And you, just that the temple is a never-ending source of uh, pop culture and references around here. It's a big deal. And I, I see that becoming a bigger deal uh, going forward into the future, Um especially with the way things uh, with the way the temple gets referenced over and over again in uh, different parts of pop culture. Yeah, I def- definitely. And by the way, if you want to get to know more of your humble hosts here, Al and uh, myself, D-Base, mm-hmm. head on over to patreon.com slash Mormon News Roundup. And you can unlock a few episodes that gives us a, uh, that gives a little bit more of our backstory if you're interested in um, what our motivations are uh, for making this podcast. Now, our next article here, um, which uh, is very timely, is from LDSDaily.com. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of LDSDaily.com. They've, uh, they've got some very interesting stuff on there. This was published on May 2nd, 2022, and it says, Church discontinues military sacred garments and offers garment marking services. So uh, I'm a member of the uh, reserves. Uh, mm-hmm. I still uh, am a member. It looks like I'm going to be retiring probably sometime in the next year after 22 years of service. But I am a member of the armed forces, um, just in a reserve capacity for most of my career. And well, what we still want to thank you for your service anyway, d <laughs> Well, I consider myself kind of like an, a Captain Moroni. I know that uh, comes as a shock to you, Al. But... <laughs> okay, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, (laughs) So in a letter sent to local leaders, the Material Management uh, Department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announces that, guess what? Uh, Military members and their garments, the garments previously designated for military members have been discontinued and will no longer be produced. Now, the church used to have specially made garments for military members that were either Mm -hmm. camouflage or brown or uh, olive colored that would you know kind of go with a uniform because you know if you're going into harm's way you don't want stark white underwear that's not it doesn't it's just mm-hmm. not appropriate and it doesn't fit in so they yeah. used to have uh, military specific ones well guess what in the letter sent to local leaders they're not doing that anymore well mm-hmm. so what are they doing instead and this is what is very interesting in the letter sent ju- uh, um, very recently here. It says that when possible, endowed members of the military service should wear their garments the same as other members, but that sometimes people need specific uniform requirements that have different colors, different styles associated with the undergarments. So there's a new garment-making order form that members of the military can send into the church, and um, it's for tops only, but essentially... You can have your own custom-made markings put on military uh, uh, on your garments now, and mm-hmm. that can include different colors than have ever been done before. So, let's say you're part of a I don't know a, a police outfit in Arizona, 
and mm-hmm. they have purple undershirts or blue undershirts or whatever it is. Well, you can send in those uh, government-issued undershirts and have them marked, and then they become Latter-day Saint garments. So essentially, mm-hmm. the church is now offering the ability to make custom-made garments. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a big change. Yeah, it sure is. It used to be that the church used to tightly control these things, and you had to mm-hmm. get— you know, you had to get them from the distribution very specifically. Well, now yeah. you can do it on their own. In fact, some of these undershirts, let's say that you're a, 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 from an FBI or a CIA, it might say FBI on the front or CIA on the mm-hmm. back. And guess what? The church says, that's fine. We'll still make them into garments and we'll still put the markings on there. Just so long as the uh, whatever uh, symbols or insignias on there are in harmony with the sacred nature of the garments and shouldn't have things like weapons, skulls, crossbones. But if it says FBI, CIA, Highway Patrol, uh, you know, Army or Navy or whatever it is on your undershirt, that's no problem. So it's it's really a unique thing that the church has never done before. No, in fact, uh, the church, I guess when the garment first came out, was uh, very uh, opposite of this. The, uh, the The garment used to be basically just a, a, a pair of long underwear that um, they would have, you know, the the wife or the, the mother or some seamstress go and put some stitches in uh, and put the markings in at home. Uh, and so oh, is it, that, right? that, yeah, back in the early days when the original uh, garment first came out, it wasn't something that was mass produced and it wasn't until, Oh, sometime in the early 1900s that the church started manufacturing the garments and uh, requiring the members to stop, uh, you know, making their own garments at home and start buying them from the church's distribution centers. Huh. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, so, I knew so, they, they used to be one piece and then they yeah. eventually went to two piece. Yeah. And, and so it's just, I, for me, it's curious to watch the history uh, and the evolution of the garment uh, over time. Yeah, so what, what this special form says is that you can actually ship your, let's say that you you're, uh, you want to buy some shirts off of Amazon. You can literally send mm-hmm. your purchase item from an online vendor directly to Beehive Clothing, having filled out the order form, send it to them, and they will ship it back to you with the proper uh, with the proper markings on there. Wow. Yeah. So I just find, I, I know maybe a lot of our listeners don't find that to be very interesting, but since I am a member of the military, uh, I noticed that they don't uh, offer that anymore, and that led to some questions. So uh, I found that to be very interesting. Well, like I said, I find it very interesting just understanding the whole progression of the garment from uh, the time of Joseph Smith to present day. Present day, uh, the most uh, current uh, um, alteration being that uh, Beehive Clothing's wanting you to send your own uh, gar- or your own clothes in to have the garment um, markings stitched in there. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, and by the way, if our listeners are still listening, would you drop us a like on uh, iTunes and rate us and leave a comment or on Spotify, wherever you find this uh, particular podcast, mm-hmm. please leave us a like and drop us a comment. That would really help us out a lot. Yeah. Now we're going to move into our next uh, couple of articles and they are on the, the silver screen and cinema in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you walk us through this next uh, uh, 
movie that is going to be shot out? Yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a movie buff if our listeners out there haven't figured that out. So I'm going to head up both of these. Um, the first article is coming from Variety, um, published May 9th, 2022. Freddie Highmore, who uh, people would recognize Freddie Highmore. Uh, he was a child actor that became very successful and has uh, made that bridge over into adult-themed acting. Um, he's now doing uh, The Good Doctor. He's, uh, let's see, he's uh, he started off as the kid from uh, August Rush and uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the remake with, um, he played opposite Johnny Depp. He played Charlie. Uh, so that, you know, he was also in Finding Neverland. Freddie Highmar, excellent British actor that's uh, done very well and had a very successful career. Now is going to, play alongside Maisie Williams and they're uniting for the manacled Mormon case adaptation called sinner versus saints. And this uh, article is written by Man- uh, Manori Ravindran and um, it takes place in the 1970s. There was a, uh, I was d- discussing this with Dives earlier that I knew that I'd seen a documentary about this. And I found that documentary um, it's, uh, Kirk and <clears throat> yeah, uh, let's see, not Kirk Anderson, Errol Morris made this documentary in 2010. The documentary is titled Tabloid and, um, so it takes place in 1970s Los Angeles and London where a beauty queen falls in love with a young man who becomes a Mormon missionary and, the young, the beauty queen, her name is Joyce McKinney. This is all based on a true story. She becomes obsessed with Kirk Anderson and follows him from Los Angeles to London, ends up kidnapping him, holding him hostage, and forcing him to be her sexual slave over the course of uh, days. I don't know if it's weeks, but probably about a week. And nobody knows where he went. Uh, his mission companion just knows that he disappeared. He doesn't know where he is. And so they go on like this countrywide manhunt in the UK to find him and end up, uh, she ends up, she ends up turning herself in, as I recall. And they put her on trial and she's like, well, we're in love. But she, uh, she couldn't bear to be apart from this young Mormon missionary. Uh, it's, it's, it's a wild ride. Uh, ow, ow, I'm having a, okay, okay, thanks, thanks, for, I, I want to say thanks for letting us know, but now I'm kind of regretting that you did. Um, this is, because, a, I mean, yeah, we, we have a, 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 a I, I'm dumbfounded on this one, I mean, this is a Mormon rape comedy movie? Yeah, so, the, uh, I mean, the whole thing plays out very, very strange. Okay, I mean, there's nothing more funny than Mormon rape, right? I mean, is that just the? the, the I mean, well, come it, on. In a slightly post Me Too era, uh, yeah, it's a it's a little strange to hear that. Um, yeah, we are in the Me Too era where we're Hollywood's not supposed to be doing these kind of things anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, how is it that um, that it's okay to have a comedy about a missionary? who's getting sexually assaulted and raped and kidnapped and abducted. And instead of making that into something that's horrible and despicable 
and uh, uh, something to be avoided. Instead, it's turned into a ha-ha comedy that is going to be a lots of laughs with zany twists and turns. Mm. It, it, yeah, it's 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 bizarre. It's a very bizarre story. I mean, now, granted, this is the 1970s and the era of free love is flowing wildly, but that's not the that's not what this story is about. You're right. This story, we're taking a bit of a turn for the serious now. This is about rape. This is non-consensual. It's sex. not free love if, if the other person is not consensual. I, I'm all for free love. Let's bring it on. Why not? This is not consensual. So. You know, I thought a lot about this. This is going to be shooting, I guess, in production starting next year. And, you know, I thought, how is it that Hollywood in the post Me Too era can even conceive of having a comedy that is about a Mormon uh, rape? And I think I think it really comes back to the Mormon missionary stereotype. Mormon missionaries, they're weird. They're robots. They're, mm-hmm. They don't have feelings. They're, they're not even I don't even think Hollywood really considers them to be real people with emotions and feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just disposable. So his particular suffering in this uh, horrible situation, well, that's just, that's just cannon fodder. And as long as it brings in ratings, then um, let's, let's, let's laugh it up. Am am I taking this too far? I'm not, I'm not sure if you're taking it too far or not. Um, What I'm going to say uh to give a counter point of view on this is that this isn't necessarily something that the uh, that Hollywood or that the outside world has foisted upon the image of the Mormon missionary, but the Mormon missionaries, uh, they've, I mean, they've been told for so long, especially for across so many decades of missionary work and going out. I mean, they are a very recognizable um, character out on the streets. Okay. No matter where you live, you see young men wearing backpacks, a white shirt, a tie, dark slacks, uh, clean cut, fresh shaved, and, you know, waving and smiling at everybody. And these are the same guys that will sooner or later inevitably knock on some, on everybody's door. And then people will either hide and pretend they're not home or they'll open up the door and talk to them. And, uh, or if they slam the door in these guys' face, these guys just keep coming. They just keep going. They just, you know, leave that house, move on to the next one, and so on and so on down the street. And so they've kind of created this kind of robotic or non-individualist, uh, non-individualistic uh, persona themselves. And I think that uh, Hollywood's just capitalizing upon that as they do with everything. I mean, it's kind of like uh, Catholic nuns have a reputation for being stern uh, teachers that slap kids' uh, knuckles with rulers and stuff. Well, that stereotype didn't come from nothing. You know, (laughs) it's because a a lot of uh, people that are working in Hollywood now went to Catholic school and got their knuckles wrapped. I guess so. I, I, you know, I'm reading this from Wikipedia, and it says American Mormon missionary Kirk Anderson in England in 1977, because McKinney and her accomplice Skip Bale and fled the United States before the case could be tried and were not extradited. They were never tried for the specific crimes. According to Anderson, he had been abducted by McKinney from the steps of a church meeting house, chained to a bed, and raped by her. I, how is this the setting of a comedy, especially in our modern day age where we're supposed to be post Me Too? Something is really wrong with Hollywood. Honestly, the de- degeneracy 
of mainstream entertainment, especially Hollywood, truly knows no bounds. Yeah, where we're still able to, you know, I, I, I'm curious to watch the movie now to see what angle they try to play it from. Uh, but really, the way that the story, the original story went, it was rather bizarre. I mean, and what was so bizarre about it is this wasn't some, you know, frumpy uh, frat girl trying to, you know, get laid. This was a uh, a beauty queen. I mean, she, the girl was gorgeous. Right. right. And, she, and she was all over him. And he was just, you know, no, no, I've got to guard my virtue. <clears throat> and she broke him down <laughs> by force. Which is what a missionary, I guess, is supposed to be doing. He's uh, he, sure. he was doing everything that he was supposed to do. So I just find this to be in pretty poor taste. Um, if yeah, if, to to our listeners out there, we're interested in knowing: Do you think that this is going to be a good movie? Is this a proper subject, or um, uh, is uh, Dbase just a big time prude? Let us know. Go over to Facebook.com/backslash Mormon News Roundup. Let us know your thoughts on it. And while we're staying, on, we're going to stay on Hollywood for our next article which is the uh, Under the Banner of Heaven. Uh, the, new, the new episode of Under the Banner of Heaven just got released, uh, episode four. Yeah, episode four uh, came out this last week, and I watched it. And let me tell you, at, at this point in the series, you're either going to never, you're not going to get this far, or you're going to watch all the way through episode seven. I myself, I think I'm going to watch through episode seven, but I... Anybody that doesn't watch all the way through, I don't blame you because I think it's pretty dang clear at this point what the agenda is. Okay. Um, but this article, um, so the church has never formally come out itself and given a statement about under the banner of heaven. It's done that with other shows well, about they, the church, but they, did, not- they haven't come out with a statement about the TV show. They did come out with a statement about the book. That's right. They did. Yeah, they did come out with a statement about the book. So there's been a response there, but not about the TV sh- uh, series. And uh, until now, <laughs> and wow. the, re- the reason I say until now is because this comes straight from the Deseret News, which is the church's mouthpiece in the press. Okay. Right. So May 11th, 2022, uh, Katie McKellar uh, is the one that wrote this exclusive. The real Brenda Lafferty is lost in Under the Banner of Heaven series, her sister says. Uh, her sister, who her name is Sharon Weeks, um, is no longer active in the LDS church, but uh, she, she may be just a, a disaffected or inactive, but she's not... Uh, She's definitely not anti-LDS. She's not um, against the church. And so for her to go and give this uh, interview, I thought was really, there's a a lot there with her just giving the interview to the church. Um, I know that there's a lot of uh, inactive people that no longer attend church and uh, that they have kind of just gone off and done their own thing or stopped attending for whatever reasons but they still in in their core believe that church is true. And so they just have tried to leave the church alone. And that seems to be where she's coming from with this. Um, but the article, uh, she expresses that she feels like her sister's memories of, well, her, the memory of not just her sister, but her niece, because there was a baby brutally murdered in this story as well. 
And this, boy, our podcast has really taken a turn for the serious uh, after that last one. So Sharon Weeks, um, the sister of Brenda uh, Lafferty, her, uh, the victim and her baby, who was also a victim of these murders, she feels like uh, the memories were overshadowed with blood and gore. And that's the one of the quotes that she gives from the article. I yeah, thought she that, says, yeah, she says basically that the series is absolute fiction. Yeah, and she she says she feels like watching this, that she feels like she was watching her sister get murdered all over again. And that's an important point here, Al, because this isn't, it's not just saying that Under the Banner of Heaven has a, 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 the wrong spin, or they didn't get the costumes right, or they maybe got the dialogue wrong, or they didn't exactly show the differentiation between... Uh, regular members and, and and fundamentalist members or excommunicated members. Those are all really quibbles. I mean, mm-hmm. we're talking about real people who were killed. And when yeah. you don't get those details right, mm-hmm. um, it has a real impact to the family members who uh, remember Brenda and um, that, that small child as well. It, and it affects them in really profound ways. Yeah. Uh, that's that's something that is a story that deserves to be told in and of itself. Um, okay, so with regards to who the real Brenda Lafferty was, uh, her sister has a lot of great things to say uh, regarding the life of this very vivacious and vibrant young woman who was cut down brutally in her prime. And, uh, you know, there's things that... Uh, you know, the whole uh, scene where she's at BYU getting uh, locked into a, a studio alone with a producer who's trying to make advances on her. She says, well, that never happened. Right. And, and also yeah. in the temple, uh, the wedding scene, which is one of the biggest mm-hmm. scenes so far in the series. Yeah. It, uh, Dustin Lance Black, which is the show producer, makes it seem like Brenda uh, was very scared and um, he depicted it as very creepy. Yeah. But um, uh, uh, Ms. Weeks in the article said that uh, Brenda actually thought that it was a beautiful personal experience and she loved every bit of it. She didn't think it was weird. She didn't think it was creepy. So, no, it's uh, I, I think what we have here is Mr. Black is trying to spread the peanut butter as thin and as far as he can on this sandwich. You know, I, I think that he's just. He's trying to make as much hay as possible with with the uh, under the banner of heaven series, and so uh, the problem is that has he forgotten that this is uh, a real story, real people with that's a real tragedy, and every time he tries to throw an extra story in to say, well, maybe it's not Brenda's story, but it's somebody's story. And, you know, that there's something to be said for that, okay? That's a legitimate argument that I'm sure that there are plenty of uh, young aspiring um, uh, journalists who have been trying to make their way as a woman in a man's world um, that have been approached in a very uncomfortable situation just like her. But... Brenda's not that person, okay? And th- and so I don't think that this movie is the place to uh, what to to uh, spread that message. 
I, I agree with you, Al. If you want to make a message about that, then don't make it based off of a true story. Like Big Love, that wasn't based yeah. off of anyone whatsoever. Uh, th that's you know? a great. That's a great example. Big Love is a great example. It's uh, it's it. There's a story that every story in there may be somebody's story. It yeah. might not. Yeah, certainly not uh, Bill Paxton's story. Uh, not the, uh, not the story of uh, most people. But at the same time, I'm sure that there's been plenty of people out there who have been marginalized or sidelined in some way. And yet uh, this is just not, this isn't a place to make that kind of a statement or that kind of, a, oh, to, to make that kind of a drive home that, oh, well, it's because of uh, fundamentalism or polygamy or, you know, mountain meadows and violence and, you know, uh, but at the same time, I'm not sure that uh, I'm not sure that Sharon Weeks really understands her sister's in-laws. I, I I don't know that she says some things in there that oh well it, it was a, about this it was a crime of passion it was a, it wasn't organized and sinister and from fundamental religious beliefs. I, I don't know if she's qualified to make that kind of statement. Yeah, maybe not. I, and I agree with what you said about um, uh, that this is a story of someone. It's really not the story of Brenda Lafferty, according to Ms. Weeks. And mm -hmm. it's not harmless to make these little mistakes. You know, no. we're, we're talking about real people, real lives, real people were killed. And when you take someone's cherished memory and you really, all I can say is Al, that you really desecrate it. It's not a harmless act to do something like that. No, it's not. And so that's where I have a real problem, not just with church history and accuracy and, oh, they didn't get the costume exactly right. And, oh, they, maybe they said something slightly off. Okay, these are all quibbles. I'm getting mm -hmm. down to the core of the series. I, I, mm -hmm. I just have a fundamental problem with it. So yeah. um, our, to our listeners out there, if you uh, it, we, we're very interested in your feedback on there, head over to our YouTube channel and uh, let us know. Uh, we upload all these podcasts to YouTube after we're done. Uh, head over to YouTube, put, drop us a comment down there. Let us know um, what your thoughts are on episode of Under the Banner of Heaven, and we'll be happy to respond. Is there anything else on this uh, article that uh, you want to bring up, Al? No, I think we pretty well covered it. That this is, uh, it's just uh, the more that this um, story or this series is playing out, it's just kind of coming across that Mr. Black has an axe to grind. And I, I hope that, I hope that in the future we'll start to see better uh, movies. You know, I am very pleased with uh, the way some of the, the scenes in the series are, are being played out. But, um, yeah, I think I think like I said, he's just trying to reach too far with this one uh, series, and I don't I don't think he should be reaching that far. Yeah, remember Dustin Lance Black was raised LDS, and yeah. also uh, Al he is uh, he he is gay. He's married. He's one of the most. Yeah. Um, he's uh, you know he's married to uh, he's a very high profile gay marriage uh, Hollywood. Yeah, an Olympian or some uh, some athlete. Yeah, uh, he's a high profile yeah. couple. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe I'm psychoanalyzing here. Maybe I'm going a little too far. But with people who get disaffected with the church, it mm -hmm. seems like people who grew up, realize that they're, uh, that they're LGBTQ, 
when those people become disaffected, I would say that it's not just a normal type of, hey, I'm going to leave the religion. They usually leave with, uh, um, they're usually pretty upset when they leave because yeah. some the church's messaging to them really, uh, it, it kind of, the church's messaging to the LGBTQ community, they mm-hmm. really see that as a personal affront to them. So it seems like he's trying to get even. I know I'm psychoanalyzing here, mm-hmm. but uh, I don't know. Yeah, um, I'd have to agree with you. Um, but even so, I'm still enjoying the series, and I am going to watch it to episode seven. As far as our uh, listeners go, well, you decide for yourselves how far you want to watch. Uh, you know, give the uh, you'll you'll probably know within the first ten minutes of the, of the first episode whether or not this is for you or not. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I just want to read one last tweet that uh, someone sent out about the under the banner of heaven. If you go onto Twitter, I mean, there's a lot of talking about this. Is a big news. Somebody said a friend sent me a temple scene from under the banner of heaven, and honestly. Though I haven't been to the temple in years, that felt so disgusting. Would a TV show reenact a religion's sacred rituals if that religion wasn't constantly othered and rendered strange in the media? These are just interesting questions that uh, Dustin Lance Black has brought up for us. And uh, uh, if, to our listeners out there, we want to hear your feedback on that as well. Now, we have uh, two mm-hmm. last articles here. Um, yeah. <clears throat> And uh, our, our last article, you want to stay tuned for this last article. Our last yes, article, you do. <laughs> but this one is also good because, you know, uh, in recently, just a couple of days ago, the Supreme Court had an unprecedented leak in the Roe versus Wade. Al, I know you follow the news pretty well. What happened with that leak? Okay, so with the leak, um, it, it came out that uh, the Supreme Court was going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And uh, nobody really knows where the leak came from, but boy, did it stir the pot. And this has gone, like, it's gone bananas is what it's done. It's yeah. it's, it's all over the place. Yes, yeah. it has. And that brings us to this article, which is, re- which is related to that, because uh, uh, Mormons have not uh, escaped the fray. And by the way, uh, who, who is most responsible for this potential leak? And I have one person in mind, because... Um, the person that I think is most directly responsible for the potential of overthrowing the longstanding Roe versus Wade and the, uh, paving the way towards the legalization of abortion in the United States mm-hmm. is your dearly departed senator, Orrin Hatch. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and that's because Orrin Hatch, remember, he was the chair of the judicial, uh, judicial, the judicial oh, committee in the Senate. That- yeah, that's right. He was. So he is the one who would have held the uh, Merrick Garland. You remember when uh, President Obama was mm-hmm. uh, trying to appoint the Supreme Court justice to fill? Was that uh, Chief Wiz? Who who was that? That was the oh, really right wing guy. Who was that guy? Anyway, oh, for heaven's sakes! Uh, oh, Scalia. Scalia. Antonin Scalia. Yeah. So uh, Merrick Garland did never never got a hearing from the Judicial Committee. Um, and Merrick Garland would have been far more left-leaning than the justices that we have now. And also, uh, you can thank Orrin Hatch for pushing through Kavanaugh and also Amy Coney Barrett, uh, mm-hmm. who is also uh, part of this decision. So if it hadn't been for Orrin Hatch holding out, pushing people through, and doing what he did to reshape the court, 
uh, Roe versus Wade would not be, we wouldn't be looking at the overturning like we have now. And that brings us to the article that we have, which is uh, by May 10th, 2022 by Amy Ellie. And the title of the article from the today.com is Mormon mom of six responds to her viral stance on how to end abortions. So in the article, we have the Latter-day Saint Gabrielle Blair. She says her biggest worry when putting her arguments online was that no one would read it, but that's not the case. There's been 36 million retweets of Gabrielle's original thread, which she, uh, she put it out in 2018. She didn't think that anyone would read it. In fact, she's behind the blog Design Mom and is an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And this thread was in, uh, was in the original thread was in the weeks leading up to Brent Kavanaugh's confirmation. So, and that was around the conversation that was sparked even back in 2018 about Roe versus Wade reversals. So it's an incredible thread here. And it says that men are 100% responsible for unwanted pregnancies. That it's not 50-50, it's not 75-25, that it's all men who are responsible for unwanted pregnancies. Okay. And she describes that women's birth control, including the actual steps to getting prescriptions, that it says, her artist says, quote, birth control options for women require a doctor's appointment, a prescription, it's not free, and often not cheap, end quote. And that there's many complications that and side effects that go along with women's birth control that are um, really uh, challenging and that men are, she says, quote, men are willing to risk life and health and well-being of women because they don't use proper birth control. And she says, quote, if you're not holding men responsible for unwanted pregnancies, then you are wasting your time, end quote. So I read through her uh, entire thread here, Al, and <laughs> you're not going to believe you're not going to believe what her uh, end conclusion is to really solve the problem. I, I can't even imagine what this would be. Al, <laughs> you are not going to believe this. When you get to the end of her full conversation on Twitter, which, again, is very popular, it's going viral these days, uh, and it's had, you know, like I said, uh, 36 million impressions, 140,000 retweets, and over 300,000 likes. So when you want to talk about Roe versus Wade and Mormons, Latter-day Saints, uh -huh. and abortion, Gabrielle Blair, she's on the very top. Not She's at the tip of the top. And her end conclusion for how to solve this problem okay. is male castration. Huh. Like um, physical castration. Ah, that is correct. And, uh, okay, well, I guess if... If men are 100% responsible for pregnancy, yes, then that would certainly take care of uh, the problems of pregnancies she or says, unwanted pregnancies. That's right. Um, she says, stop protesting at clinics. Stop shaming women. Stop trying to overturn abortion laws. If you actually care about reducing or eliminating the number of abortions in our country, do one thing only. Simply hold men responsible for their actions. And so she said, what would that look like? What would be the immediate consequence for men who cause an unwanted pregnancy? So in other words, if a man causes an unwanted pregnancy, in my experience, men really like their testicles. This is from her tweet. Does castration seem like a cruel and unusual punishment? Definitely. But that's what she says, put a castration law on the books. Wow. That's 
that's a bold statement to make. <laughs> um, yeah, it is. I, this is, at the, like I said, this is making the news. So when people are Googling more uh, Roe versus Wade or Latter-day Saints, this is what's coming up. Well, then where are we going to get our obedient workers from in the next generation? Wait, what, what do you mean, Al? What do you oh, mean? I, I guess I'm causing more problems than I'm worth. Um, <laughs> so, well, if you're going to, I mean, it's not just unwanted pregnancies. They're going to be um, uh, prevented by castrating all the men. Um, it's going to be any wanted pregnancies as well. Although I guess, uh, you know, using the same logic that brought uh, polygamy around. Um, yeah, one man can impregnate several women. So all it takes is one man, although then you end up with some severe uh, genetic problems with the lack of uh, diversity in the uh, genome. Yeah, so in one of her tweets, she says, quote, don't like my ideas? That's fine. I'm sure there are better ones. Go ahead and suggest your own ideas. My point is that it's nonsense to focus on women if you're trying to get rid of abortions. Well, uh, uh, do we have to go so extreme as castration? I'll, I'll ride with her this far. Mandatory vasectomies. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, and I was with her for a lot of the way, too. Yeah. Uh, so I just maybe I'm just not as much of a feminist as I should be. You know, maybe I'm just too patriarchal. Just don't cut off my junk. Oh. It's just, but there's got to be a line here that, uh, you know, uh, there's got to be a better solution than the one that she's posing. I, I don't have yeah. the answer. Well, I, what, I you know, what she's, po- what she's proposing is uh, genital mutilation. Yeah. And th- that's a step in the wrong direction. Because, I mean, it seems like the world's movement right now is trying to stop genital mutilation Um you know, especially like female genital mutilation, but I, I know that there's a big movement to uh, stop um, circumcisions as well for the same reason. Uh, and this is just going a, a lot further than just uh, snipping the foreskin. This is going into causing this. Is, yeah, this is uh wow. Permanent. Cha- that's a permanent uh, solution. Yeah, um, so I, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with her overall conclusions, but um, she is very newsworthy and um, probably not heard the last of her. So, um, yeah, I, 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 it seems like there should be a better solution. I, I don't have the solution, but uh, I, you, know, you know, the purpose of this podcast is not for me to espouse what all the right yeah. answers goes to all of life's questions, but. It's no, just, but, but you know what's really exciting to me about this D-Vase is because it, what's exciting about it is that this is the kind of discussion that we need to start having. We need to start, like, throw any harebrained idea out there. She says it so herself. You got a better idea? Throw it in the ring. I, shoot, you know, what about uh, mandatory vasectomies? Vasectomies are, vas- are pretty much risk-free and reversible. So, I mean, you can elect to have it reversed when you're ready to be a father. Maybe you're right. I don't know. All of this, I, you know, Al, I wanted to try to get a female co-host on for this week, and I did invite a couple of people um, mm-hmm. because probably we are not the best ones to probably come up with the solutions for this. I'm just 
I'm oh, not. heck no. <laughs> I'm not putting words in your mouth if I'm saying that. <laughs> oh, no. We, I'm agreeing with you. Heck no. We are not the right people to have this. All right. Um, so quick, uh, we're almost down to our last article. I just wanted to follow up real quick from last week. First of all, yeah. we have our confirmed first guest host, and that's uh, from Signature Books. Mr. Uh, Devery S. Anderson has agreed to come on the podcast, Al. And remember, we're sponsored by Signature Books, mm-hmm. and he's, part of, uh, he's a, a, a famous author. And he's agreed, uh, he, his most famous work is on Emmett Till, but he has agreed to come on the podcast either next week or the week afterwards or, or sometime in the near future. He's going to come on with us and ruminate about the Great and Spacious Beehive. So we're definitely looking forward to that. Certainly are. And follow-ups from last week, finally. I have one last follow-up from last week. We talked about who the most powerful ex-Mormons were in the world. Mm-hmm. And we said maybe it was Dustin Lance Black, but I actually have continued to think about that. And okay. remember Bruce Bastion, the inventor of WordPerfect? Oh, yeah. Right. He's a Latter-day Saint, and he's worth a lot of money, and he's funded quite a bit of, uh, you know, he's funded. He he, he was part of the Proposition 8. Um, Uh You know, money talks when it comes to power and influence, and Bruce Bastion's worth over a billion dollars. Yeah. Maybe he's the most powerful ex-Mormon in the world. Or the most uh, the most uh, recent one was uh, Jeff Green. He's uh, uh, he tendered his resignation. He was a Latter Day Saint, and only six months ago he was uh, had his membership withdrawn. He's worth yeah. one billion dollars, and he's also donated to a lot of uh, Mormon related. Uh, he set up an endowment basically for BYU students who are LGBTQ, so mm-hmm. that they'd be able to leave BYU, and he, he would house them and help them and do whatever else. So. There are a lot of powerful ex-Mormons out there in the world, maybe um, even more powerful than Dustin Lance Black. I'm not sure. Uh, Mr. Green sounds like a really nice guy. That's very generous of him to look after his fellow men like that. Yeah, he set up, I think, as a six, I wanted to say it was a huge uh, fund. It was something like a $600 uh-huh. million dollar endowment for BYU wow. students who mm-hmm. are LGBTQ who need to leave BYU, attend mm-hmm. a different school. Uh, have different housing, and he really wants to take care of them. So maybe yeah. those two are among the most powerful. Really not sure. But anyway. you see, you see, people can be part of the solution. <laughs> we don't just have to throw out uh, some extreme, uh, some extreme ideas to to fix things. We can be like uh, legitimate in our solutions. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, our last article, this, you hopefully our, our listeners are still with us because this last article is a doozy. This is incredible. So we have from, uh, if you look at our, our last article, this is from Twitter here. So I'm pulling up the article right now. It's the tweet from, um, what's the name of this organization again? The Widow's Might? Yes. The Widow's Might Report. So this is a link that, that was tweeted out on May 10th, 2022 at 10.09 a.m. And if you go to the Widow's Might report at WordPress.com, you're going to see the most detailed uh, review of church finances that is in-depth that you're ever going to see. And we're going to walk through some of that with our listeners here uh, today. Uh, so the slide number one talks about uh, it's a closer look at the LDS's church's real estate holdings. And some estimates of church property holdings are are reaching in excess of $250 billion. Now, the Truth and Transparency Organization said that they could confirm about $20 billion of real estate holdings. But the Widow's Might Report 
does even more. There's a huge volume of information, and this is a giant analysis that really takes in a lot of different sources. So uh, if you go to slide number two, um, you're going to see, uh, sorry, my, my computer is uh, being a little bit slow here. Uh, slide number okay. two. Are you with me on the second slide? Yep, I'm with you. Okay, wonderful. So well, uh, the second slide shows a, basically an overview and a snapshot of how much the church is worth as a whole. So the church does not disclose all of its real estate holdings. And we know that the church owns tens of thousands of dollars of properties, and they're recorded under many unique, uh, unique names. So what this analysis shows is that they think that the church, the Widow's Mite Report, thinks that the church has real estate assets of around $105 billion. And with that total with Enzyme Peak and everything else, including welfare farms, are saying that the church is worth around $255 billion. So Enzyme Peak, uh, again, Enzyme Peak, you're looking at about 150, $150 billion and real estate holdings around $100 billion and then a little bit extra here and there. That's incredible because these guys have been as accurate as they could possibly be. And yet I, it's, they still seem like they're being conservative in their estimates. But they're, they, this is as close as they can get, really. I really think this is as close as anyone can possibly get who does not work at church headquarters or has yeah. not had leaked documents. Because yeah. remember, Mr. Nielsen from Enzyme Peak, he didn't have access to everything. No. He doesn't see, oh, he can only see what is inside Enzyme Peak. So the church really silos their different, uh, they're different. Uh, you know, the real estate people don't know what's in, in the Enzyme Peak. Enzyme Peak doesn't know what's in other places. The tithing collection, they don't know what's in the other things. They really silo the information. It makes it hard for one person to know how much the church has. Yeah. Okay, so going on to the third slide, it shows all the different types of church properties. The church real estate holdings have a unique identity names. And some of them, you know, one of them is called the BYU Museum of Art. Another one is the Corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ. Another one is uh, the Kaysville First Corporation of the LDS Church. Another one is the Spanish Fork Third Corporation of the Church of Jesus Christ. There's over 1,500 different uh, names, recorded names for church property across many different uh it's really vast in the way that they, they make it hard for anyone to go out there and search and find all of their real estate. You really have to know what you're looking for in order to capture the full picture. Yeah, th this list looks like it's uh, maybe about oh, 60 to 75 uh, names long, and it's got all these different entities. And they're saying that there's more than uh, 1,200 other variations that they've uh, found out there as well. So this is... Wow, this is really something. Yeah, they're really building on the back of that truth and transparency leak that we covered. I think it was back in episode two. Yeah. So there's uh, there's like $20 billion worth of real estate that's just under a couple of names. But if you want the complete picture, you have to know all of the names that the church has. And according to this, the widow's might has found at least 1,300 of those sources. And there may even be more. Yeah. So going on to the slide number four, it says, okay, uh, this is, these are the different categories of real estate holdings. There's ecclesiastical buildings and sites. That's like chapels, temples. And they're saying that that's worth about $62 billion. A BYU that's got four campuses. Uh, what are the four mm -hmm. campuses of BYU, Al? Uh, let's see. They've got the Provo one, which is the main. 
And then um, it used to be Rick's College. Now it's BYU-Idaho up in Rexburg. And then in Laie, Hawaii, um, they've got next to the Polynesian Cultural Center there, the BYU-Hawaii. Let's see, in the fourth? um, LDS Business College. LDS Business College. (laughs) That's right. It's a small campus. It's only only on, it's up in Salt Lake City. All that combined is worth about $10 Now, there's known farms and ranches. That's worth about $9 billion. That's the church welfare farms and investment ranches. And then there's commercial real estate buildings. Um, those identifiable properties in industrial areas, parking lots, that's about $6 billion. All of the mission homes, which we covered earlier, and all of the MTC sites, that's worth about uh, $2 billion. And then finally, we have other property investments. Now, remember, Enzyme Peak is worth about $150 billion. The church has admitted that it's worth 50, but the, the leak says it's worth 150. Well, inside of Enzyme Peak, a lot of Enzyme Peak is in stocks and bonds, uh, you know, just in, in stocks and bonds, both the New York Stock Exchange and in international stocks. It's a very, and in bonds, it's a very diverse portfolio. But in any real, in any good portfolio of investment, you're also going to have investment real estate properties of the billion dollars in real estate that's in Enzyme Peak. Wow. That's, so all that's of that a lot of real estate. That, hey, you know, that is, that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of real estate. It's crazy. <laughs> 16 billion. Right. So yeah, that's I mean, total, yeah, wow. <laughs> that's, everything in this report is wow. It's a, over a hundred billion dollars of church owned real estate, $105 billion in church owned real estate. Mm-hmm. which represents about 40% of the church's total net worth is in real estate. Yeah. So on to our next slide, slide number five, this is ecclesiastical buildings and sites. Those are temples, chapels, the uh, you know, Temple Square, and other historical sites like uh, you know, the church owns the Hill Kimura, the church owns uh, in Nauvoo, they own a lot of sites there. They own yeah. sites in Kirtland, Adam on Diamond in Missouri, mm-hmm. all of that is worth about $62 billion. Mm-hmm. And according to the slide, Al, how many uh, wards and branches are there worldwide? Uh, let's see. Wards and branches send uh, 31.3 thousand wards and, and branches worldwide. Right. So if you think, remember that every ward does not have its own building, right? So that's not all individual buildings they share. Yeah. So let's say, assume this again. They take everything into consideration in this report. Let us assume that each ward has about two wards per building. Mm hmm. And that uh, each of those buildings is about a 13 or 14,000 square foot building. Mm-hmm. And let's also assume that these wards and chapels, they're pretty cheap to make, aren't they, Al? I mean, this is not exactly luxurious uh, accommodations, right? Well, I, I understand they're mostly built with uh, the volunteer work of the local clerk or the local lay membership. Well, I mean, they were, but now it's contracted out. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, so they used to be built, you know, the, the members used to raise the funds to, for their own chapels, but now it's all central yeah. because they have this all contracted. That's why it's only $200 per square foot. And they said that the land that it's on is about $650,000 for the land and the building. I mean, they take everything mm-hmm. into consideration. But yeah, because each of these buildings is sitting on probably about three acres of land. Exactly. So that's going to be, say, around $650,000. Yeah. There's 169 temples with 40 of them in construction. Each of the average, we talked about this before, Al, but they are saying that the average for a temple is 63,000 square feet. We were pretty close, weren't we? Yeah, we were. 
We were. <laughs> they, uh, here's where, remember, we agreed to disagree. You thought that a temple would be less than $500 per square uh, foot, which is the commercial average of real estate in the United States. Uh-huh. I thought it was a little more. Well, they are agreeing with me that uh, they think that the average cost of a temple is uh, about $1,100 uh, per square foot. Boy, did they agree with you. <laughs> they did. also say that these temples are on very spacious grounds and they are pegging knolls. I mean, uh, how many acres do you think an average temple is on? What? 20? Oh, no. No, they, they've, what, maybe 10 acres per 10 acres? I mean, they're, they're huge, vast uh, swaths of, of property. Right. So they're saying that with the land and uh, just the land that surrounds that, they're saying that that's about a $4 million worth of land. Mm-hmm. They're also talking about there's, a, you know, the temple, the the, the conference center. They, they, they got it all in here, how much it would cost for everything. Yeah. Ecclesiastical buildings and sites, a low estimate would be $12 billion. And a high estimate would be $78 billion, but they're pegging it at $62 billion. Uh, and, and the rationale for how much all of this costs, I mean, you can go up or down and say it's more conservative or aggressive, but you really can't argue with the boundaries that they've set. No, that's uh, it's like, like I said, this, these guys are really as accurate as they can be. Absolutely. It, you wonder if they have a lot of insider information or whether they're just really, really smart. I mean, we piece some of this together out, but uh, compared to them, we are, uh, I guess we are dodos compared to them, as Elder, yeah, Holland, so. as Elder <laughs> Holland would say. Yeah, now, I got that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, now, slide six, it talks about how much is BYU campuses worth. So BYU, there's four mm-hmm. BYU campuses. Yeah. They talked about, you know, the Provo is a 10 million acre campus. Uh, square foot, square foot, excuse me. Uh, Idaho is 7 million square feet. Uh, Hawaii is 2 million square feet. LDS Business College is 150,000 square feet. And again, they're just using the assumption of the commercial real estate average of $500 per square feet. Mm-hmm. And they're also talking about, you know, how many acres it's on and the value per acre. Well, which is the most expensive mm-hmm. per acre? Is it Provo, Idaho, Hawaii, or Salt Lake City? Uh, I'm, uh, let's see, between Salt Lake City, I'm going to go with Hawaii. Definitely. So they're saying that the acreage in Hawaii is very expensive. An acre in Hawaii is very much more expensive. That's why they're pegging all of the BYU and related campuses with $10 billion. Mm-hmm. So our, our next one is the known farms and ranches. So there's uh, a lot of farms and ranches. They're saying that there's at least 2.5 million acres, million acres in identifiable farms, ranches, most of that is in North America, spread across almost 3,000 properties, and the church has 35 active church welfare farms. And again, they're doing a, a pretty a pretty reasonable average here is two to four dollars per acre for ranch lands, and about four. You know, they, they have pretty reasonable averages for all of the welfare farms. They're pegging that the big ranch in Florida is the biggest farm, uh, the the big ranch in Florida, which mm-hmm. some must put that up at a million acres. I mean, it's just it's a lot of land. Yeah. And there's Washington and also Nebraska. Those are all the biggest church farms. They're saying that that's somewhere, you know, somewhere close to $10 billion. Yeah. Uh, slide number eight is the known commercial and residential properties. That's office buildings, residential buildings, parking lots, event centers. And again, they're just using the commercial real estate average of $500 mm-hmm. per market square feet. And mm-hmm. they've identified 11 million square feet of uh, commercial hospitality. Those are, uh, you know, the church owns some of these Marriott, you know, the church bought some of these Marriott properties and, you know, the church owns, you know, uh, the ch- uh, church office building. And also, you know, they mm-hmm. own uh, KSL Radio. There's office buildings there. and Deseret News has office buildings. And, you know, there's the, the church office building itself is one million square feet. There's just using the commercial real estate average for all this. And it gives you about six billion dollars for all that commercial real estate. Yeah. 
Now, the MTC homes, we uh, discussed that earlier. Uh, there's 400 missions. There's 11 MTCs. Mm-hmm. That's worth about $2 billion. Bucks. Uh, yep. Slide number 10. Uh, now, there's unknown property holdings in the EPA. That's the, we know the EPA has you know, about a 17% allocation for real mm-hmm. estate investments. And uh, they're saying, well, if 17% or so, that's probably around $16 billion in investment real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, my goodness. So when you finally get down to it here at the end in slide, we're almost to the end, slide 11. We analyze the known data, check all of the professional databases, incorporates many assumptions, but we're giving a range of church real estate. The lowest that possibly could be would be $45 billion. The highest would be 126 And they're saying that the current estimate is $105 billion. Mm-hmm. In slide 12, you'll see what are the biggest uh, investment properties. Uh, what, uh, what, are the, what are the big investment properties of the church owns? What are the most valuable pieces of real estate, Al, that the church owns? Um, shoot, uh, valuable pieces. I'm guessing maybe the Polynesian Cultural Center in uh, Hawaii. Um, um, that does not make the top. Look on slide 12, Al. No, it doesn't. Okay. Holy smoke. You, you need to understand the Polynesian Cultural Center is not that big. You're talking about ranches here that are a million acres. That's who the yeah. Polynesian Cultural Center is competing against. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, and the, the top one there is the City Creek Center. Right. City Creek Mall. Uh, the church admitted that that would cost about $1.5 billion, mm-hmm. But some of the estimates peg it all the way to $5 billion. So it's difficult to say who, who's yeah. right. This, uh, the Widow's Might report says that it's worth $2.5 billion. Uh-huh. And then followed immediately by the Rex Ranch in Nebraska and then a couple of the ranches in Florida. Those are giant, giant, yeah, an acre plots of land. I mean, I don't know how much the Polynesian Cultural Center is on. It's probably on like, well, I don't know, 100 acres? Oh, yes. Not, 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 not even. I mean, the Polynesian Cultural Center is oh, probably about 20 acres, I would think. It's, it's not that big. You're comparing a million acres against 20. So. Yeah. And, I mean, a million acres in Florida. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> we're, we're also talking about another tropical uh, area, but um, that's got a lot more um, what surface <laughs> yeah. surface area to, to buy yeah. or usable surface area. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and the, the, you can see all the church's valuable holdings. So that's the basic summary of the report here. And it, and that gives you a nice figure of what the church is really worth. There's so many figures that are just thrown out there by everyone and everything. In fact, today I'll, I was listening to a discussion from uh, Michael Quinn, that famous BYU researcher. Mm-hmm. Back in 2018, he talked about the valuation of the church. But the thing is, is that he didn't have all the leaks and the documents that we have now. And his estimates, I think, are way off because he just didn't have the complete information that we have now. Searchable databases, leaks from Enzyme Peak, information. If he did, it would be more accurate. So we are getting closer and closer to figuring out how much bad boy is worth. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, DeMichael Quinn, I, I remember him talking about it. And it was like he, he knew that the church was loaded. But you're right. I don't think he had any idea just how loaded the church really is. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by church finances. I don't know why. <laughs> I just I really am very interested in them. So according to Enzyme Peak, the operating budget for the church is eight million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. But if you're sitting on two hundred and fifty billion a year, you can pay that eight billion I mean, that's not what yeah. 
That's 3%. Yeah. You, you don't need tithing at all. Yeah. To run. I mean, and you should be getting more. And now all of these are not appreciable assets. Obviously, mission homes, you're not generating income. Temples, you're not generating income. No. But uh, not, still, not until you turn around and sell them. But in the meantime, they're in the church's pocket. And I'm sure the church uh, paid for those mission homes, uh, what, probably in the 50s? Maybe even earlier than that, at when uh, prices were in the thousands instead of in the hundreds of thousands and millions. Maybe I mean, I'm sure a lot of them were, but you know they're opening up new missions all the time. You know, they of open course, up- so they have to acquire new properties. Yeah, they got to acquire those new properties all the time. So yeah. it brings you to the question, though, Al: um, yeah. Is Russell M. Nelson the richest man alive? And the reason that I ask you that question is. Mm-hmm. Um, the church is a corporation. It's called a corporation soul. Yeah. And that's kind of a technical term here. But a corporation soul, and this is from um, a, a website that I, that I read off. It's called My Law Questions. A corporation soul is a legal entity in which one person and his or her subsequent successors are granted the lawful status of a corporation. So Russell M. Nelson has been granted mm-hmm. the lawful status of a corporation. So the yeah. vast majority of corporations' sole arrangements are related to churches and other religious institutions, allowing the easy transfer of church property between successive religious officials. So a corporation's sole functions as a sole proprietorship with no legal partners, no board of directors, no stockholders. He does not answer to anyone. So wow. he is in control, according to the widow's might, of $250 billion dollars all by himself. Mm-hmm. And he would be the uh, current sitting president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, that is correct. Yeah. Uh, that, so it's not, uh, wow, that, that's a lot of, um, a lot of power for, <laughs> one, for one person to have. Hey, that, you, that, that makes the priesthood kind of seem like a secondary power. <laughs> Yeah, the the president of the church has every key. Well, he not only has every key, but he he has every gold plated key. Yeah. Now, uh, who is the richest? uh, You know, who did they say Elon Musk or uh, is it Jeff Bezos? Who is those guys keep going back and forth. And, you know, it's always over in the news. And there's there's a third guy that's in there that uh, I think has like a Latino name or something, but I, yeah. I can't remember what he's involved in. I, but yeah, th- those guys keep like flip flopping back and forth, and they're they're talking about a uh, hundred billion to two hundred billion, right? Less than two hundred billion, right? They, they haven't broken that yet. That's correct. But if these figures are correct, and I just see no reason that they're not, mm-hmm. they are paling in comparison. They don't need. You know what? I bet that. I bet Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, they don't even know who Russell M. Nelson is. Oh, I'm sure they don't. And, and Well, they, they may do. But I'll tell you one thing is that uh, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, I'm, I'm sure that they both have a board of directors to keep them in check. Um, yeah, Amazon is a public company. Yeah, and, um, all- and those Tesla. Yeah. Tesla is a public company. Um, is SpaceX, uh, I, I believe. Yes, it. yes, SpaceX is as well now. Pub, pub, uh, you know, uh, PayPal and mm-hmm. all of those companies, they, they answer to a board of directors. Yeah, um, but Russell M. Nelson does not. I, he has oh. the, the first presidency, so he has his two counselors. He has the, cor- uh, the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, 
but who keeps who keeps uh, the the profit in check? Right. So uh, let's just that's a good question. I want to come back to that question now. I've I've been doing some research on that as well. So if you talk about the richest, let's let's put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. Talk about the richest men in history. And let's be quite frank. They're all men. Yeah. When you talk about the richest men in history, I'm going to I'm going to count you down to like the top five. Well, we have Andrew Mellon, who was uh, he's worth like one hundred and eighty or one hundred and ninety billion. He had interest in oil, steel, coal. Those type of things. Then you have Henry Ford, who invented, you know, the the Model T. He uh-huh. was worth about two hundred billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you have the Vanderbilt, uh, which was, you know, the New York native Vanderbilt. He made uh, a lot of money in steamships. Uh-huh. But that's uh, Russell L. Nelson is still ahead of all those. Number three mm-hmm. is uh, Jeffrey Fugger, who I'm not very familiar with, but mm-hmm. he's very unique because he was part of uh, er- earned his wealth. Uh, not as the head of a state, but as a businessman in Germany, not, not something I was very familiar with. But number two, we finally get to Andrew Carnegie, worth 337. And then number one is John Rockefeller on top of 367 billion. Wow. But Russell M. Nelson, if you put him into this list as someone who is controlling $250 billion plus, mm-hmm. he's third, third all time richest man who's ever lived. My goodness. Now, you could say also, by the way, there is a dark horse out there for richest people, richest sure. person lift, and that's Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. We don't know how much Vlad is worth because he controls yeah. basically the oil reserves of an entire country. Yeah, I mean, he, he owns Russia. He basically so, owns. And, yeah, yeah. It, it's a question of just how much uh, vodka is Russia got, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, you know, he could be a dark horse, but. Uh, could be. Mm-hmm. Russell M. Nelson, he, he could be top three. So mm-hmm. if you think about that, you know, most most people have heard that the LDS corporation is called a corporation sold. And mm-hmm. all of the LDS businesses are owned under two different uh, sole corporations. One is the corporation mm-hmm. of the president mm-hmm. and the other one is the corporation of the presiding bishopric. Yeah. So the corporation sold, it's basically uh, it's a legal entity consisting of a single sole incorporated office occupied by a single sole man and allows him to pass all of his assets, everything else to the next person without there being a transfer over. And if you look at the churches, uh, the church was incorporated back in 1923 by Heber J. Grant. And you Mm -hmm. can still Google and find those original incorporation documents. And sure enough, it does say that the LDS church is a soul, is a corporation soul. Yeah. So you wonder, could Russell M. Nelson, you know, I just these are thought experiments for me. Could Russell M. Nelson say, I'm going to sell every mission home. I'm going to sell every temple. I'm going to sell all the BYU campuses. I'm going to sell all the stocks in Enzyme Peak. I'm going to sell all of the commercial uh, real estate uh, business, uh, all the commercial real estate. I'm going to sell every LDS owned business. I'm going to sell every office space, every hotel. I'm going to sell everything. Um I'm going to liquidate it and put it into one checking account. Mm -hmm. Could he do that? Could he liquidate an entire church? Right. Yeah. Um, What, what would be there to stop him is, is uh, my question. Cause I mean, it it sounds like it sounds like he could. It sure does sound like he can. Um, I I don't know who's going to question him. I don't know who's going to stop him. So if he can do that, then he really is worth that amount of money. 
just because it's not all liquid at the moment does not mean that he's not worth that much, you know, because stocks with Elon owning Tesla, that's not liquid either. You actually have to sell those stocks to make it liquid. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, just because you don't have liquid assets at the moment, just because it's not in a checking account doesn't mean that you're not worth that much. Yeah. So that was the thought you the thought question. Tom Nelson be fired. If he were to do something totally off the rails, like try to sell everything that the church has and put it into one checking account. Um, and this is where uh, I did a little bit of research on this, too. And we're going to finish up on this. But there's a very rarely used um, council in the church that's called the Common Council of the Church. So the Common Council of the Church is a body of the church that has the power to discipline or remove the president of the church or one of his counselors in the first presidency due to misbehavior. And its existence and status are very uncertain and controversial. And the body, though, has been formally convened twice. Once in 1834 for Joseph Smith and once in 1844 for Sidney Rigdon, because those are the only two times that someone in the first presidency got in trouble. Now, there's been many there's been a few apostles that have been excommunicated over the year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. First presidency can excommunicate those guys because they're, you know, you know, they're the leaders of them. Yeah. What do you do if the president of the church um does something wrong well you had the trial of joseph smith and this was in 1834 the council yeah. convened for the first time because sylvester smith made charges against joseph smith related to zion's camp well mm-hmm. joseph smith came out on top of that one and the council determined that smith had acted quote in a every respect in an honorable and proper manner and all the monies and properties entrusted to his charge and that's the only time that the president of the church has ever been tried before the common council mm-hmm. now the trial of Sidney rigdon was in 1844 and they excommunicated him. Um, uh, they, they excommunicated him because that's what you had to have the common council in order yeah. to get rid of him. So the common council is who, who is who, who, who makes up the common council of the church? Well, this was spoken of by a revelation of Joseph Smith in March 28, 1835. And this is a quote. Inasmuch as the president of the high priest that shall transgress, he shall be had in remembrance before the common council of the church, who shall be assisted by 12 counselors of the high priesthood, and their decision upon his head shall be an end of of the controversy concerning him, and none shall be uh, exempted from the justice and law of God, end quote. So essentially, essentially, the president of the church, or a member of the first presidency, would uh, face this council and it would be composed of the presiding bishopric of the church and 12 other high priests. So could Rasulam Nelson be in this position? It's theoretically possible. It's happened twice before in the church. Could it happen again? Theoretically, it could. Wow. <laughs> That's, uh, it, you know, part of me wants uh, the oldest um, sitting prophet to lose his mind and have that called into question well i I don't know about that i hope that uh everything with uh russell and nelson works out very well and Mm -hmm. i hope that uh you know that he uses his incredible church resources of Mm -hmm. 250 billion dollars um i hope that he is using that um as jesus would have him use it i i hope so too but i i mean Come on, I, I'm I am a very debased person that I, I love watching the dumpster fire and the train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't that somewhere in the back of your mind, Dives? Somewhere in the back, in the sinister corners. Doesn't you just want to see this thing catch fire and like, 
I'd like to see him like go completely insane, like King George the Fourth, or. Honestly, honestly, Al, not really. I mean, I, I want to, I want to see. You know, the, I, I, the church has such incredible power. It, mm-hmm. it just has so many resources. It has such an incredible to bless the lives of the humans on this planet. Not only those who are in the church, but for those outside of the church. Yeah. And honestly, what what I wish for the church and and for President Nelson is that they use that power for good. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I really want to see. Well, and I hope that we'll have uh, going forward a lot more articles like the first one instead of uh, the the kind of uh, banter that I've tried to provoke everybody's minds with at the end of this. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Hey, I ruminated as best as we can about the Great and Spacious Building. I think we've uh, had some incredible insights here. I don't think anybody of the other podcasters out there are covering the kind of stuff that we're covering and are giving you the analysis and insights that we're giving to you and finding these incredible off the wall, but incredibly powerful articles. I don't think you're getting that from any other source out there. Am I right? Well, I mean, let's face it. Who else is out there is is postulating that the president of the Mormon church is the wealthiest man or wealthiest human on <laughs> wealthiest single human being on alive on the planet today? I mean, you, you aren't going to get that from the uh, LDS newsroom. I, I would <laughs> I would I would assume that you wouldn't. I was and that he's the third wealthiest man who's ever lived. I don't yeah, think get that anywhere else <laughs> of all time. That is correct. So I think we've done a great job. This was an incredible episode. If you made it this far, please uh, drop us a like, uh, uh, you know, uh, let us know uh, as well. We would love to uh, get to know you. And uh, thanks so, so much for joining me, Al. I really appreciate your insights. And we're looking forward to uh, meeting you again next week. Yep, and a special thanks out there to Weird Alma for letting us use his music. Uh, We certainly love his music, and you can always uh, check out his full albums on Bandcamp if you feel so inclined. Um, And we'll uh, play it out with him. When it comes to nicknames of the church, such as LDS Church, Mormon Church, to remove the Lord's name from the Lord's church is a major victory for Satan. 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 Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a being with no moral constraints. My number one goal is to hurt the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.